Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 141, recorded on March 28th of 2021, the Photo Geekery Show. I'm your host, Don Kamarechka, and uh, joined with a guest every week. I you know, dig through the news stories. I find something geeky and photography-related to talk about, usually three to five stories. And here we are, this week's episode, with a guest that... Um, is intelligent and eloquent and uh, a great photographer in his own right, but a total geek about all of this stuff. And I'm so glad to have uh, Shiv Verma back on the conversation. Shiv, how are you? I'm doing good, Don. Thank you for that introduction. Geeky, yes. I think we all are geeks in some way or another. And it's just the quantum leaps of geekiness that uh, you address in your shows that uh, make it so interesting. I mean, that's that's the whole point. So, yeah, um, I uh, I feel that shows like this really, uh, you know, help to build up the momentum in geekiness. So let's go ahead with it. <laughs> well, thank you very much. And I was looking up the um, the last time that I had you on. It's been a while. It was uh, February 20th of 2020, uh, sort of before this, uh, not not world-ending event, but definitely normal-changing event of the pandemic. And and so it almost feels like it's been five years since I've yeah. talked to you last in, in the same format. What have you been up to in the past year? Actually, uh, you know, the pandemic has had its, uh, you know, it's taken away from a lot of my travel, that's what I really like to do. And all my workshops, they've all sort of came to a grinding halt. Uh, but I think in the in the most part, I've spent a lot of time creating, uh, you know, various programs that have been uh, sort of used for, again, virtual shows by, uh, you know, camera dealerships and things like that. And then uh, been doing some one-on-one -on -one educational uh, programs for photographers. You know, they're sitting at home and uh, got nothing else to do but uh, participate in some sort of education, and that's uh, that's been fun. Um, but I'm now at a point where, hopefully, after the, this coming week, when I've had my second shot and given these, you know, various. Uh, doses their opportunity to wreak havoc with my body once that's over uh you know i'd like to at least uh, start traveling again so we've got a trip that was postponed last year to namibia re-established for this year the question is now will namibia let us in and uh, that's ah, right. that's where, yeah but uh yeah that's uh you know it's 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 been chaotic but uh what I think everybody do? can say the last year has been chaotic. I think that's a yeah. universally applicable word to the majority of people for good or yeah. bad uh, or just different uh, in, in so many ways. And, and like you, I've done a lot of online education um, and, and I've enjoyed that too. You know, it, it's been different. I, uh, I, I can you know, stop doing a presentation and, uh, and immediately five minutes later be sitting down and decompressing, uh, you know, with a drink with my wife and just kind of relax and so on. There's no, um, hour or two of driving to get home from wherever that camera club happened to have been. And, uh, and so there, there's a certain, uh, 
you know, comfort level that I guess comes yeah. from that, which oh, is also absolutely. completely distracted by having my wife and daughter at home 24 seven. So, you know, there's, it's different. And, and I enjoy now that we're coming out of this, uh, this very long winter, I've got flowers blooming outside and I want to pick up the camera and shoot. And I've got those creative energies flowing again. And, and of course, um, you know, I, I, I just last night, uh, as we're recording this here on, on the 28th, on, on the 27th, I had, uh, you know, done the digital distribution of my upcoming macro photography book. Um, so that's the ebook version that uh, everybody uh, from Kickstarter and that had pre-ordered a- afterwards, I think everybody at this point has gotten the appropriate links um, to to download that. And that's one of the big steps. Uh, of course, the hardcover edition is, is off to the press and that'll be uh, delivered to me hopefully within a month. Uh, and that project was uh, ultimately delayed by the pandemic and the ability to have clear thought for hours on end without distraction. Uh, I miss those days. I'm looking forward to having those again uh, at some point in the future. I have no idea when it'll be. I've embraced the chaos so long as it lasts and, uh, uh, and, and we'll see. But uh, great to have you back on. And I'm glad that uh, this past year hasn't derailed your creativity too much. Although, yes, travel and uh, and going to those wonderful far off destinations. Um, I'm sure you're itching to get back. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Can't wait. But you know what? I think we have to realize that uh, what I want to do and maybe what you know, I'd like to do as far as my photography is concerned uh, isn't uh, going to happen because of where I want to be isn't going to let me do it. So who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Uh, we will get back to normal eventually. That that yes. That's the guarantee. Yes. You know, it's just a matter of how long and that light at the end of the tunnel. Let's just hope it's not a train coming towards us. Um, because if there's one thing I've learned in this past year, uh, there's a lot of curveballs that come around every corner. And I just wake up every morning and think, okay, you know, today's going to be a good day. I'm going to be productive. I'm going to spend time with family. And tomorrow... Well, it's going to be whatever tomorrow is going to bring, uh, but take it day by day. Learn how to dodge those curveballs and you exactly. will survive. <laughs> yes. uh, well, and, you know, the camera industry hasn't stopped during this past year. Uh, and there's been lots of new camera, new gear, new technology announcements that I haven't had the opportunity to geek out with you over. Uh, but there is some that are new to this week. Uh, and the first story in the rundown uh, is from DP Review. They've had a number of articles uh, relating to the new Sigma FPL Uh the one that I put in the show notes at photogeekweekly.com is hands-on with the Sigma FPL and its new viewfinder. Uh, Now, I'm not sure if you referenced this article or others. Feel free to read whatever coverage uh, you happen to come across on the internet about this new version of the Sigma FP. Uh, Briefly uh, stated, uh, you know, the camera on its own without the electronic viewfinder is $2,500. It's a uh, 61 megapixel uh, mirrorless camera that uses the Leica L mount. uh, And it kind of follows in direct succession to the Sigma FP, which had nearly exactly the same form factor, uh, lower resolution sensor, uh, you know, and one can assume that this one has beefier processors and all the things that one would expect for a a successor in the same line of cameras. what, what do you think, Shiv, of, uh, I mean, first of all, uh, you know, the, the L mount is, is getting some new camera bodies and some new attention into these niches, which I love. Um, but what do you think about Sigma's uh, sort of progress in this vein versus what they had originally promised with the Foveon sensor? Well, I don't think the Foveon sensor is going to, to happen 
uh, at least not anytime happened, soon. It's right? yeah. I mean, the, the the whole concept of the Foveon uh, you know, sensor itself is just so brilliant, um, and and the fact that the way it's been patented, you know, unfortunately nobody else can can deploy it. But uh, you know, it seems that what what Sigma has done is probably taken on the 61 megapixel Sony sensor and used it because uh, you know the 24 megapixel uh, sensor that they had in their previous version, I think, was also a Sony sensor. So I believe apparently, so, yeah. you know, the 61 uh, megapixels is the same. Sensors, the Sony A7R4, I believe. Yes, um, but you know, the the fact remains that you've got a very, very large pixel count, or or you know, on a sensor, you've tried to cram it into a very small camera body, um, and yes, the processors, etc., probably have been beefed up, but. The sensor doesn't read out fast enough. I mean, if you really look at the technical specs, the readout is one-tenth of a second for that sensor. So you're then immediately sort of looking at, all right, so what is this camera going to do? It doesn't have a mechanical shutter, and the sensor is going to read out so slow that you're obviously going to have a lot of jello or whatever you want to call it uh the the concept just eludes me as to why not make a change that's going to be for the better well and and so some people want higher resolution i get that you know sometimes it's just a marketing term that people gravitate towards and that makes their decision uh in in, in their purchase but that's always going to be the case. Uh, in the case of a, a niche product like the, the FPL, uh, it's not going to be on everybody's radar. And those that looked at the FP originally, the, the small format, the form factor made it great to build around, like to put a cage on and to build all sorts of video and cinema centric accoutrements around that as a camera body, especially as, you know, just an accent camera to uh, even a larger shoot. And it made a lot of sense to fit that niche. Um, but with this new sensor, with the very slow readout, and the fact that you know, 61 megapixels, that, that might be a desire for still shooters. No film uh, a film shooter is going to require that. They're, they're, I mean, maybe they'd need 6K or 8K video, which still doesn't require a sensor of nearly no. that resolution. Um, so it kind of feels like they've taken the the established use case of the FP and thrown it out. Uh, and now for the FPL, um, the people that would have like upgraded because it does a better job than the FP look at this and says, no, it does a different job and it doesn't do it nearly as well as other cameras that are built around the same sensor. Mm -hmm. um, now, I, I understand Sigma's potential desire to do this because uh, as you mentioned, the Foveon sensor is unique, right? Like there, there's, there's nothing else quite like it. Um, and in order to maintain the same level of quality, or at least to do an apples and oranges comparison, they're both round fruit of roughly the same size. Um, if you put a 61 megapixel, uh, you know, sensor inside of camera like this, and then uh, distill that down to say like a 24 or 30 megapixel image, your quality might be in some ways comparable in a rough estimation. But still, 
that's not the same technology and it's not the same market. Um, so that kind of leaves me thinking that this camera, especially at that price point, it's not a cheap camera. And if you want the electronic viewfinder, which is an add-on accessory, that brings the price up to $3,000 US. Um, uh, but then there's another point that, uh, you know, I, I just feel before we get on to the EVF part of it, is that the camera in itself it perfectly well stated that, you know, it was designed to be a module uh, to be used in either a cage or some other form factor that, you know, you could deploy multiple cameras like this to do all kinds of really incredible, uh, you know, videography or even photography for that matter. But you now put this entire system into uh, a, a state where the resolution is so high that you're going to have other issues like noise that you you know you, you can see the noise problems in the Sony A7 um, R4 uh, and and clearly that's going to be you know even more exponential if you try and crop in further uh, you're not increasing the space between these pixels you're not distributing the heat any better just by cropping in so you're going to have clearly a lot of noise issues to deal with and then what bothers me a little bit further in looking at just the camera body itself that now you have a high resolution camera okay so you add on an evf but could the camera not have been designed, at least if you look at it from a landscape photographer's point of view, somebody looking for high resolution, or even from a studio photographer's point of view, looking for high resolution, wouldn't you want the screen to at least have some articulation? Yeah. I mean, I mean it absolutely. doesn't have, you know. So uh, positioning yourself to be able to view what you're shooting, uh, you know, becomes cumbersome. So now you add on a $600 EVF and you would hope that the EVF would be at least equivalent to some of the better EVFs that are out there. But the pixel Yeah, well, I, yeah I want I want to touch on that too, Shiv, because yeah. if I'm going to spend like if I get the EVF afterwards, it's it's not 600, it's 700 US. Yeah. Um and if I'm going to spend $700 just on a viewfinder, it That's better be the price of the body. Yeah, uh, it better be the flagship, the most expensive, the best quality EVF you could possibly manufacture into a product. And it isn't. It's a, a I think, a 3.68 million dot EVF. And we know that they have much higher uh, resolution EVFs on the market already. Well, even so, the cameras like the, the Lumix S1 has a, what, 5.76? Yeah, the, plus... the, the S1, S1R, S1H. I've yeah. got all those cameras and I love them. And, and really at that point... Uh, at that point of resolution, I thought, okay, there, there's no going back from this. I'll take more, but I don't think I'll feel comfortable with an EVF that has less than that. Maybe it, it, it spoils you. Uh, but uh, I, I do like the idea of a modular camera, though. I'm not, I'm not going to say that I don't like this concept, but... You know, if I had even a micro four thirds camera, like I, I love my uh, my Lumix GX9, nice, compact, tiny little camera. Um, I don't really use the EVF on it very much at all, uh, although it does have a really cool like bendy, uh, you know, feature to it. And uh, uh, if I could have that as like an upgrade module 
that I didn't need to buy uh, with the cost of the camera and, you know, removing complexity and possible places for water to get into. I could just put like a sealed cover on that, or I could put an EVF on there, or I could put some other accessory or, you know, a GPS module or what have you. I mean, I love the idea that a camera could be modular, although the return on investment for manufacturers is often not there. I mean, the, Rico did this with their modular, uh, you know, camera, you know, sensor and lens things for, for some of their cameras in the past. And I just, I don't think anybody's found a profit center uh, around that idea, no matter how much I love the idea. But so Sigma, I don't think uh, they, they might make money on this, but it seems like it's just a refresh. And the R&D costs involved in this, they try to minimize as much as possible just to get something more out the door. At least that's my take on it. Well, to some extent, maybe that's what it is. But I, I feel that if you're going to put out a camera with resolution as the motivator for purchase, then do things to the body that will make it worth that upgrade. Uh, case in point, what is this camera for, or who is it for? I, if you I say can't even figure that out. <laughs> right. So, so let's assume for a moment it's a landscape photographer's camera. Then it falls flat on its face because it doesn't have any articulation in the screen. So you've got to get the EVF for it. Or now, even on the, on the back of the camera, Shiv, it's got buttons for tone and color. Yes. I don't know many landscape photographers that depend on getting that dialed in perfectly in camera. I mean, you're going to shoot raw. You're going to have an idea of how the scene is going to look. You might run it through some filters after the fact on your computer, or you might just take complete control mm -hmm. of exactly the final output after the fact, so long as you've gathered enough information in camera. If right. you really care deeply about dialing in the specifics of tone and color and, and you know, uh, such atmospheric feel of an image, you're probably not even shooting stills. You're probably going to be gearing more towards video at that Video, point, which yeah, would be harder yeah. to, to work with. And they're already steering away from that. And then the other thing is, let's assume it's for a studio photographer. So what are you going to use this camera for in your studio? Well, number one, it doesn't have a hot shoe. So you can't <laughs> use any of your remote strobe capability. Uh, it has a, a PC sync cord, I believe, a PC sync socket, which doesn't really work for remote triggering. I mean, it, it'll trigger the old style, you know, strobes, but what do you do in studio with your, I mean, right. Uh, well, you'd have, have to buy an adapter that then would trigger your uh, more modern strobes as a result. Right. So, so, then so you're now just... you're looking at an, probably another $700 module that you squish onto the side of the camera. I mean, to me, it's, it's something's missing and maybe I'm not getting it, but something's really missing in this, this overall concept of this modular FPL. I, I think you're right. Something is missing. And from all of the commentary that I have been looking at online, people, uh, some people loving the design, but then they don't really stipulate what they would use it for. And then anybody that tries to find a particular use case for it kind of falls flat. Yeah. Um, that, that's not to say that there won't be some niche uses for this, but I think that it, is, it has less 
of a use case than the original FP does, uh, because that sensor doesn't really do it any favors for the cases that I might consider using it for. Um, you know, it is nice to have a fairly compact L-mount camera. Uh, and, you know, I still keep my Micro Four Thirds cameras along with me in my camera bag mm-hmm. if I'm ever going out shooting. And that's sort of my secondary camera. And it would be kind of cool to have a really small body as a secondary backup in case I would need it that would use all of the L-glass, um, the, the L-mount glass that I have. Uh, but if, if I'm losing so much in the translation to that, uh, and I'm losing a lot of functionality and flexibility. I, I don't think it's a compromise that I would make either, even as a secondary camera, as a backup. Yeah. Well, th- I mean, there are there are other problems, you know, in addition to just this. One of the things that I really don't understand, every camera that is out there that has an EVF, when you bring your eye to the EVF, the screen turns off and the EVF is on. Well, and it can be configurable to do different things, but that's the default, yeah. But but in this case, the default is you actually have to do a switch. You have to switch from screen to EVF and EVF to screen. It doesn't do it with a sensor. So a $700 gizmo that's basically devoid of any functionality except showing you the view. So, I mean, uh, there's just, uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's just... And the other thing I couldn't quite get is uh, what, I mean, they, they say it has an SD card slot. It doesn't have two slots. Is I don't it? see, I don't see any, uh, you know, recognition of two slots. So yeah. uh, I, I think we're just a single card slot on this guy. In fact, when I'm looking at the, the pictures in, in the hands-on setup, there's just uh, a single card slot on the bottom uh, in the battery compartment, which you find on right. a lot of smaller compact cameras. Yeah, so it's a single card slot. So you know, sixty-one megapixels. Uh, you know, you're probably going to be needing if the buffer is a fast emptying buffer, you're going to need at least V60, V90 cards, uh, and then to have only one card slot. Yeah, okay. You know, maybe this is designed not to be a carry around camera, but an in-studio camera where you leave it plugged into. A but it doesn't somewhere. fit that use case either, Shiv. So there you go. So <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And All the, right. the, other well, thing, the other thing I do want to, I know we're, we're extending this beyond, but the, final words, the, the, yeah. one, the one nice thing about the camera is that they have deployed in the, the L-mount system both phase as well as contrast detection. And now the question comes up is how do the Sigma L-mount lenses, which were really designed for the Panasonic cameras, uh, you know, motor response of those lenses is really designed for contrast detection. How well will those lenses really work with this? Or are we going to have the need for another modified L-mount lens? Well, I mean, contrast detection is not the same uh, as uh, DFD, the depth from defocus technology that Panasonic has built into their focusing systems, which has gotten a lot better uh, in latest firmware updates. And and that, I think, will continue to improve as software recognition and, you know, deep learning patterns start to recognize more things more readily. But... Um, if the lenses are designed to kind of focus based on on that, mm-hmm. I, I don't know if if sort of the, the driving mechanism, the, the communication protocol to tell it to do one thing, to focus in a particular point, is going to be hurt when you change the metric for which those instructions are based on. It's still the same instructions overall. So I, I would assume that it performs 
perfectly fine, uh, so long as uh, as it's accurate enough, like in terms of how accurate the instructions are to focus exactly on this particular point uh, and, and don't deviate from that because mm-hmm. we know that's mm-hmm. where the focus lock is going to be. Uh, and, and so there we have it. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I guess time will tell to see how that all shakes out. True, uh, true. But let's let's go on to our next story here. And this one, I don't know if we're going to spend too much time on, but it is neat to see. Uh, also from DP Review, uh, Xiaomi's Mi Mix smartphone will be the first in the world to use a liquid lens. Now, it's not the first liquid lens ever used. Those are, uh, you know, uh, inventions of antiquity, and they keep coming up in novelty items. I've seen some Lomography cameras recently that we talked about on a previous episode that use a liquid right. lens. Um but this is an actual consumer uh, device uh, in a smartphone that is going to be using liquid lens technology. Now, there's a quick video, and I mean quick. I think it's less than a minute long uh, as a little teaser for it. And aside from there being liquid presented as a, a graphic in the video, it looks more like the lens is a flexible membrane as part of the lens element. Uh, you know, it's sort of concerted effort here to refocus light. And yeah, there's probably liquid, whether it's water or not, inside of, of a membrane that is flexible by whatever means they're designing. All of that is still sort of um, mired in vagueness. We don't have mm-hmm. the specifics. But uh, I think it's only been a matter of time before we start to see more exotic lens designs. We've seen periscope-style lenses for adding telephoto functionality to smartphones. Uh, we've seen you know, all sorts of exotic glass elements that are purportedly to you know, behave better in certain use cases without trying to make a lens bigger and bulkier within these cameras. Um, but this is the first time that we've seen an actual flexible lens element. Do you think this is going to be a flash in the pan? Like this is just going to be one off attempt at this and nobody else is going to look at it again? Or is this type of um, revolution of optic design going to become more commonplace? I think it is going to become more commonplace. I mean, we are looking at the opportunity to miniaturize optics for uh, whether it be phones or it be phone-like cameras. The, the fact remains that will the technology get implemented in the short term or is this going to be another very long-term implementation? Uh, the key about any kind of lens that is built this way is if you have two membranes or a, a sandwiched bit of fluid in between two membranes, you have three elements of refraction that you're going to be dealing with. Yep. And and that's not an easy thing to accomplish. The other problem that you're going to have is that any kind of liquid is going to be subject to a lot of variation as far as temperature is concerned. And, you know, we're using these phones as our way of communicating in any weather conditions, whether it be winter, summer, whatever, and if you're going to have liquid variations uh, in your lens, then basically the camera is going to become useless in certain conditions. And and what if the liquid freezes? Yeah, or you know, well, what if you leave your phone in a hot car, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, uh, on a summer's day, and so th- there could be potential damage there. Maybe uh, you know that you could compute the difference in temperature if there's a thermal sensor attached to the camera module and then you can calculate a differential in the shape of the lens based on its temperature 
Um, but that's really getting complicated. Right. Um, and, you know, to, to your point about different uh, refractive uh, uh, indices, uh, what if the membrane had the same refractive index as the liquid inside? Uh, and I'm sure that would not be too, too difficult to engineer, at least to have them close together. Um, well, but, in, but that index changes with temperature, right? So that, that, that yeah. again, it's another variable. But then, you know, I think, I think at some point, maybe, rather than it be a liquid-based uh, optic, it is a flexible material optic, something like uh, maybe a plastic that is responsive to magnetic or electronic fields that you could then alter the shape based upon what you want its focal length to be. So, you know, something like a, a single material rather than multiple materials would solve for part of the refraction problem, but may also uh, be subject to no temperature change per se, because well, and if, and if the shape also changes have fatigue, right? Uh, yeah, I think yeah. that might be what you're getting at. Right. So fatigue, yes, eventually, or then you get these lenses that you pop in and out of your camera because as it ages, it fatigues and cracks, so you put a new one in. But I don't know. I think conceptually I like the idea because rather than having three or four lenses, you have a single lens in your camera. Yeah, of course, it makes a lot of sense. It probably bring the cost down. Uh, but will it really be feasible in the short term? I'm not so sure. I think that smartphones have a shorter lifespan um, than uh, than regular cameras and lenses, right? So, like, I, I might use a, a phone for, you know, a year or two, and then the new ones start to gather my attention, and I start kind of lusting over the newest model and the newest features, and I might not buy it. In fact, I used an iPhone 6 for what, five years um, before now I'm using an iPhone 12. But um, that... Uh, th that idea of uh, of keeping a phone for that long, um, well, even six years, I've got camera bodies that are 10 years old, lenses that are 20 years old. Um, that I, I think that the, the transient nature of this would work best in a more budget phone that you intend to use for only a year, maybe two maximum before it uh, expires its usefulness because the next one being also very affordable doesn't have a cracked screen or scratches and everything uh, can become new mm -hmm. again including the the optics in the camera well the, yeah quite quite possible i mean I, I look at it you know the lusting for new technology is always you know there in phones and just like cameras i mean i i look at Yes, I do have cameras that are many, many, many years old, but they kind of sit on a shelf. And every time new technology comes up or a new camera comes out, you do want it and you do get it. And, you know, I've been sort of looking at it while, while you were talking. I was saying, yeah, I started using Lumix cameras in 2013. And between then and now, you know, eight years, nine years, I've probably been through about 12 cameras. <laughs> so, Yeah, well, you're, uh, you're an outlier uh, compared to the majority of people. Not, not to say that, um, that that's not what we all want. Um, but, you know, I, I've got a Canon 1DX that um, when I was uh, sort of finished with when I upgraded, 
its shutter was so well used, it was at its life expectancy. And so I had it converted to full spectrum photography and I kind of mm -hmm. gave it a new purpose, uh, you know, uh, for me to use. And I used it that way for a couple of years, got some really cool scientific imagery, at which point it's now retired. If anybody wants a very well used full spectrum 1DX, I will give you a bargain on it. Uh, because while I own it, it is still it's still sitting on a uh, on a desk in my studio. It hasn't been used in forever. It, it needs for somebody else to give it one final hurrah. So I, I, I guess I hear you there too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, we, we look at where the camera manufacturers are marching ahead. It's not just the smartphones. It's, you know, the, uh, the traditional camera space that we're dealing with. And, uh, I think the majority of people listening to this podcast want to hear more about that type of technology as well, which brings us into our next stories from both Nikon and Canon, but also truly everybody in the industry. Um, one article, uh, again, these have been thus far from DP Review. Uh, Nikon expects profitability and plans to release more Z-mount lenses by 2022. Now, caveat there, their fiscal year end of 2021 ends the end of this month, March 2021. So when they say 2022, that doesn't mean next year. It means uh, their the next rest of this year. year. Exactly. Yeah. The rest of this year. Uh, so there's that. But there's also been a number of patents that have come out uh, from Canon. And that doesn't mean these are going to be actual lenses. There's a lot of patents filed that don't become anything. But we're seeing ultra wide, very fast lenses, 12, 14 and 20 millimeter lenses, all at f2.8. Um, so these mirrorless platforms are being, you know, fully rounded out with a lot of extra gear that not everybody needs a 14 or 12 millimeter f2.8 lens. But to have one in the lens lineup uh, to aspire to, I think is a good thing. And the fact that Nikon is doing it as well, you know that Sony and Panasonic and anybody else in the market, Fuji with their uh, GFX cameras and everybody else, um, they're working on new stuff. But well, Sony just announced three new lenses. I mean, in the f2 to f2.8, they did, and, and they look beautiful. And the, yeah, I mean, the, the 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 24 millimeter lens, I believe, has some, some radical issues as far as distortion is concerned. But you know, distortion can be corrected with software, so that's not really a big issue. But where I see this going is lenses becoming smaller in their form factor. I think I've that's really where, yes. Um, you, you think about, you know, what Canon did with the 800 millimeter lens. Uh, I know it's an F11 or an F13 type lens, but it's it's very compact. It's very small. Uh, so I think that the, with the mirrorless full frame uh technology you lost some of the smallness that came through with mirrorless you know APS-C and the micro four-thirds cameras and you went back to these very large lenses but I think the the whole industry is looking for compact smaller and and what kind of designs can be used to really shrink down uh, both weight and size of of lenses, and I think that's really where the the next round of money is going to come from. 
I also think that the fact that you can have a shorter flange distance uh, so that the rear element of a lens is closer to the sensor, especially when you're getting into wide angle or exotic lens formulations, um, then it makes it easier to design a lens around that, especially when you have a, a wider lens mount. Uh, like everybody but Sony, because the Sony lens mount uh, for their full frame cameras. And I've mentioned that this before on the podcast. I, I don't yeah. think it was ever designed for a full frame sensor to be situated inside that from its beginning. Because if you look at a Sony E mount full frame sensor, the edges, the very corners of the sensor are actually cut off from a normal perspective view when you're looking in at it, unless you're kind of looking at it from an angle. Yeah. Uh, and that just makes me think that any lens engineered for that, I'm not saying it can't be done to, to, to fill the frame properly and to have proper, uh, you know, edge clarity and sharpness, but you have to jump through extra hoops to get there. Uh, and in the case of some of these patents that I'm seeing, uh, you know, you don't have the most unusual elements as as a rear element. It looks a little bit more standard fare, and that could reduce the engineering costs uh, and make some of these lenses cheaper, but also lighter. Um, or if you did want to throw everything at it uh, in terms of budget, engineering costs, and you want to make something that is of similar price to its replacement or even more so, then you have more flexibility in design to make it that much better compared to the previous generation of lens as well. Mm -hmm. Completely agree. And, you know, you go back to, you know, the 35 millimeter form factor film days. Um, and yes, you didn't have the issue of, you know, flange distance because the Leica's never really used mirrors and mechanical shutters of the type kind that we are used to in DSLRs. Um, their lens opening was not huge. If you look at the, you know, R mount lenses, the M mount lenses, they were not, not that large, but yet optically they were beautiful because the image proves the point. Yep. That's the kind of lens design and technology, I think, that is being now revisited uh, for the newer lens lineup that's going to come out. Because I think that's what you're going to see. Uh, despite the fact that your E-mount opening is small, it's still something that can be accomplished quite easily if you look at the way the technology is being deployed. And I think that, uh, you know, we, we have a sense of freedom with lenses, not just from the big parties, but the third parties as well. I mean, I, I just got this tiny little pancake lens in the mail recently. I haven't tested it. It might be a pick of the week if it actually turns out to be good from a name I've never heard of before per gear. Um, it is a, uh, an F 10 or sorry, it's a 10 millimeter F eight fisheye lens for micro four thirds. They did make it for other mounts as well. And mm -hmm. it has a focusing lever. I don't know why I love focusing levers, but they just seem fun. Uh, and so just a bare minimum lens design on something like that. Um, you know what? It's F eight. I don't really need a fisheye lens to be f 2.8 unless I was using it for astrophotography and then maybe. Um, but for a lot of the other types of scenarios that I could use it, that would be perfectly fine. And it, it's yep. a fixed aperture at f8. And you know, if this, this little tiny trick lens, it, it's thickness like triples when I put the caps on the top and the bottom. Um, I can see that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so like for something that, that small and that novel, uh, and that's on micro four thirds, obviously a mirrorless platform. 
we can have more novel lens designs. And that's yes. to say, wouldn't it be great, Shiv, if every camera that you bought, instead of coming with a lens cap, came with a lens cap? Like an actual lens, uh, yes. you know, in, instead of just the the, the mount covering, and uh, and so then you have you have that ability to say, okay, well, this is uh, maybe just a fun little trick thing to play with, and and that could have a cult following. I would think mm -hmm. if any major manufacturer uh, shipped a tiny, simple lens like that with every one of their camera bodies, um, then you would have competition competitions that evolve around shooting images with that lens because it would be universal. It would be uh, an, uh, a qualifying factor that if, if everybody who's anybody from an artistic standpoint is using that lens for that competition, then all of the artistry then there beyond becomes equalized. I think that be would be a, a lot hole. of fun. Could that? Yeah, exactly. It, it could be a pinhole. It, it, I mean, it yeah. could be as simple as that, although I'm sure that manufacturing costs could give us something a little bit better than a pinhole on uh, mass like that. But I don't know, uh, maybe I'm, it's just wishful thinking. There's a lot of ideas that could come as soon as you're changing format. And we're not even talking about potential new formats where the optics could be so much simpler if you mm -hmm. curved the sensor as well. And if you had that to be designed in a way that, yeah, you're uh, your focal plane uh, no longer has to be flat. Uh, and we haven't even gotten there. I, I haven't even seen a whole, uh, you know, army of patents from the big manufacturers well, there have in that been, area. There have been. I there have been some. And, oh, yeah. And uh, Sony and Canon both have, uh, I think, put out fairly recently, there was a revised patent for a curved sensor, I think from Sony, if I'm not mistaken. But you haven't I, seen I, the I, lens patent designs on mass. There hasn't been a concerted effort for them to be filing patents around a curved sensor design, which arguably would be an easier thing to do because you really just have to create the theory of a good lens uh, in order to patent it, uh, you know, because you're patenting the optical formula. And yet we haven't seen, you know, you know, uh, patent dumps of a thousand different designs or even a dozen different designs really right. uh, no, no, from, right. from from one yeah. manufacturer or another and because we haven't seen that in any way it kind of tells me that nobody is really serious about that next leap because they're all focusing so much on their new i'm going to still call it newly released uh mirrorless mounts because uh, you know, the Canon EF mount existed, what, from the mid-80s through to mm -hmm. now that's still active. Uh, so that's a pretty long life of a, of a mount system. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll see. We'll see where this goes. But hey, everybody, no shock here, uh, every camera manufacturer is still making new stuff. So there you go. Uh, the, the world marches well, that's, on. That's, that's a very good thing. It is. It is. And uh, before we get into our last story and our picks of the week, Shiv, uh, where can people find you online? Whether you're doing uh, virtual tours or tours in person, where could people fo follow you to keep up with your latest? Uh, just one website, and it is www.shivverma.com. And then you can click on all the various links to go to the Instagram pages or the YouTube uh, sections or whatever. And though the workshop schedule is pretty devoid of valid information, uh, I'm hoping that by the time we get into the summer of this year, it'll be populated for the rest of this year and next year. 
Well, let's look forward to that. And so those links, bookmark them. They'll be over at uh, photogeekweekly.com, which will send you right over to shivverma.com. And uh, and all of your social media links uh, will include those as well if people want to keep up with your periodic musings. Um, are, are, what, what platforms are you on in, in social media? I, I don't see it too often posting, but when I do, it's usually poignant. Well, it's... Uh... Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, those are primarily what I've been doing. There's an occasional dump into some of the others, but uh, not significant. <laughs> there you go. Now ah, you'll find all the links at shivverma.com or at photogeekweekly.com. Thank you, Shiv. Um, and uh, final story. This is kind of a neat, clever hack. Um Uh, From Petapixel, a photographer invents a clever reflection-blocking box for shiny products. Uh, And as soon as I saw this article, uh, I thought, okay, I want one. Partly because I like shiny things, uh, but but also it's a really novel idea playing on the the concept of, of a mirror. And uh, Shiv, why don't you describe what this apparatus is? So... Um, if you've ever been arrested and, <laughs> and then she is speaking into, from experience here and you go into an interview room, you have the experience of being watched, but not know who's watching you. And conceptually, that's a one way mirror. And, and, and that is, uh, the people on the other side of the mirror are in a darkened room. So there's no light yes. that is emanating or very little light. Um, but you're in a well-lit room if you're in the interrogation room. And if the people on the other side of the mirror wish to be seen, all they do is turn the light on on their side because these mirrors are not solid. They are semi-transparent. But if there's no light to transmit through on one side, then you're not going to see anything, right? Correct. So if you deploy that concept for photographing shiny objects, you can basically take away all of the reflection. Now, shiny objects in this apparatus have reduced reflections if they are curved. But if you have a flat reflective object, then this thing will work really well. So the problem that still needs to be addressed is how do you compensate for curved subjects because they do still you know create that reflection based upon what is in and around this rounded object so the, but, this rounded uh, object let's talk about the the mirror that we're talking about in this particular apparatus is uh, semispherical it is a semisphere yes. so it's a half of a sphere that is mirror coated um, and it's illuminated from behind, uh, so that the light comes into this, uh, mirror dome and it reflects off of the inside of the dome to hit the subject. And then some of that light will then progress through. And so if you're in a darkened room, you can see this, uh, object as if the mirror is non-present, although that's where that sort of soft lighting is coming from, which was a really novel design. Um, could you do this in better ways? Oh, absolutely. If you're a seasoned portrait photographer or studio product photographer, you've got all the scrims and the snoots and uh, and the you know the diffusers and everything else that you could possibly imagine in order to create this. So that, to, to your point, Shiv, it's very possible to oh, yes, alleviate yes. these problems. However, 
if you're inexperienced, if you're a beginner, if you don't necessarily know where to start and you just need to take some quick product photos to put up on eBay or Amazon or whatever your Etsy shop is um, without having the, the large product studio or to pay a product photographer to do it, possibly this could be a really cool, uh, you know, add on to, you know, whatever is in your workshop closet, you pull out whenever you've got some new product to, to showcase. Yeah. Well, I mean, it 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 does it does create a whole new opportunity for photographing, uh, you know, even if it isn't you know for product on eBay. Uh, you know, using a light tent has been the kind of go to solution, but I think now you have something that's that's better. Uh, the question really is going to be how much is this apparatus going to cost uh, compared to you know a sixty dollar light tint. And I think that's where the questions really come up. And and yes, I mean, you're absolutely right. If you're a seasoned product photographer, you've got all the tools to get rid of, you know, any kind of reflection that's going on. Uh, but even, even if there is some, as long as you know Photoshop, you can fix that too. True. Uh, I was actually curious if you could build a bigger one of these, because this looks like it's maybe two, two and a half feet across in terms of the diameter of this semi-sphere. Um, but what if it was bigger? What if you could like make it big enough for like um, a headshot? Photographing uh, a car. Uh, photographing a car. Sure. I mean, that, that would be massive unless you're using a model car, but, um, but even, even a headshot, what would, what would somebody's catch lights in their eyes look like? Uh, would it be like an inverted, uh, halo of their body because the light would be coming in from behind, but then it's reflected off of that surface, which would, uh, be spherical and distortion. I just, it'd be very curious to see if there would be any, uh, and, and what it might be. It'd be a very unique look at, at the very least. Yes, yes. Uh, to create but I think, I think like if, if one could get, if one could get a, a, a hemispherical piece of glass and actually coat it with this translucent reflective material it, it might be worth an experiment an experiment uh now i would i depend on this for my professional like high end uh you know paying clients type of work probably not because it's not optical grade glass and the glass is curved assuming that it's glass and not plexiglass and everything else so um you know the the resolution that you would get shooting through this object might make things a little bit murky in the critical resolution that your camera's capable of um but at the same time as a quick fix for something that is just a product shot being sold on amazon um mm -hmm. that nobody is going to be pixel peeping about i think this is really cool um the, the guy but that you created, could have a port you could have a port that you put your lens on and it's just that area that is you could absolutely uh, that's not know, in this design but yeah yeah, uh, and, and we should say that this was designed by uh, Eric uh, uh, Espinosa, and uh, he did a little video describing how he created the device, how he can use it, and was fully honest in saying that he has no uh, desire to necessarily market or produce this as a Kickstarter campaign or anything. However, if he did, I would probably buy one. Uh, it's just the kind of unusual thing that I might never really have a use for until I have an aha moment uh, mm -hmm. in some obscure scenario where, you know, this thing taking up space in my closet for that many years now finally has a purpose. Uh, and uh, and I, I you have might even find a snowflake to work. 
Uh, you never know. I actually have a, a parabolic mirror that I bought a number mm-hmm. of years ago uh, to do. Oh, I can't pronounce it's a German word. The Schlieren effect, or I'm I'm probably butchering it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to uh, to kind of. Uh, image the density difference in air around like a candle mm-hmm. flame or, or anything like that human breath uh, and that can be imaged with uh, some fun physics so I've got that and that's also sitting in my closet uh, that I've never actually used this could go right alongside it I think yes and it'll come out one day when you really need it yep you never know <laughs> you, you never know. You never know. So, but anyhow, but I, I think uh, re- you know, recommendation for the person is that you know he might just want to you know apply for a global patent on this. And it does say in the video that he's patented it. I don't know if it's global or not, or exactly how well the patent's been put together because those can be picked apart if it's not done by the right people. Right. Um, but at least he's taken some endeavors uh, to uh, to protect the invention. And I've never seen anybody do this before, and so that was novel and clever. And kudos to uh, to Eric for, for putting this together. So that's awesome. Um, that brings us into our picks of the week. Uh, and Shiv, it can be anything, a service, a product, an app, uh, a an idea even. And, and one thing that I've been doing uh, a lot of in the last little while is fixing things. I mean, I've got a young daughter at home that needs batteries replaced in her toys. So you need tiny screwdrivers or watches that for one reason or another break, or even camera lenses I've had to take apart and put back together, sometimes to fix something, sometimes just to experiment and have fun with. Whether it be all of those things or a video game console that uses an obscure bit. I think every uh, every geek should have a kit that has oodles of bits of things that you may never use until you find exactly that one particular device that requires it, and then you've got it handy. And so there, you can spend a lot of money on these. Uh, you can spend a little bit of money on these. I spent $23 Canadian uh, on it. Uh, comes from Amazon Prime. And uh, it has pretty well everything I need, including things to repair smartphones. You've got your, uh, you know, your suction cups and your spudgers and, uh, and all of your pry tools, etc. cetera. Uh, so this kit... It's a great one. Uh, it was just sort of highly recommended as a number one bestseller. Uh, and when I was just kind of gearing myself up to say, you know what, I want to have everything I need without having to worry about it. I don't use screwdrivers often. Now I've got this kit that if it takes me an extra minute to put a bit into a driver and use it, that's all I need. And it's worked really well. So f- fewer sheared screw heads. Well, and they actually come with a number of, uh, you know, uh, uh, Phillips bits that are all the same size and flatheads that are all the same size in case mm-hmm. you wear one out. Uh, or you, it's oftentimes if you end up uh, stripping a screw, you've also done damage to the screwdriver bit as well in the process. True. So they, they know me well enough. To so give what is me this, extra... about 100 and 120 little pieces of things and 200 pieces of little things? Yeah, uh, between 117 or 122, depending on which yeah. one you buy. Uh, and, and some of those are just extra little guitar pick, little tools to separate things and what have you. It, it's all pretty much the same base kit. Um, and uh, and again, repetition on some of those components as well. But hey, you know what? I, I think every bucks worth it. Uh, for every geek out there, you might have one of these kits already. And I know that my previous one, I had lost half of the bits over the ensuing five or six years that I was using it. And that's on me. Um, this time, I've learned my lesson. I haven't lost a piece yet. 
yet, knock on wood, that I haven't lost anything. I will, uh, but for 22 bucks, I think that's a pretty good thing to have yeah. in your desk drawer uh, to fix anything you need. Fabulous. I mean, that's, what have that's you got for uh, me? a good uh, little tool. What I have is, you know, people have been probably doing things with luminosity masks in their photo editing for years and years and years. And there's lots of wonderful luminosity mask tools available. Uh, but I came across this product called uh, Astro Panel. And it's, it's very similar to, you know, luminosity masks, but it's independent. It sits as another panel in Photoshop. It's, it's a plugin. And it allows you to do a bunch of changes and modifications to not just your astrophotography, but also to landscapes and, and other images. And, and some very key tools that I find otherwise to be rather problematic when I've got to get rid of the, you know, the green glow from an astrophotograph. Well, here you can just get rid of the green glow and you can enhance or diminish your, uh, your stars based upon their light intensity. Um, there's a, there's a product that has been recently released by a photographer who's really into, into a lot of astro work. It's, um, I forget what it's called. It's it's more like a star enhancer mm -hmm. that makes stars that are bright get a little bit of a glow and enhances them, and then stars that are not so bright, it diminishes them. But this is a software equivalent of, of doing just that. And it's uh, from an Italian company because the uh, astropanel.it is the website. But, uh, you know, it's worth checking out. I don't know if they have any, you know, sort of free trial periods or not. But What's the cost uh, on I've, it? Uh, it's, I think, regularly $120-odd, but it's down to like 39, 39 euros. That's a pretty good price. price. For, well, for yeah. software that would uh, inherently, uh, you know, improve your workflow or at least uh, make it easier uh, to, to get the yeah. same results that would have otherwise taken a significant amount of other effort without tools tailored to it. it to, to make one image shine, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I would pay that. You know, if the software yeah. really made that big difference for a single image for me, then, uh, then that is the cost of admission. And if I was doing a whole series that could benefit from that, well, all the better. I mean, I've spent so much money on little things like that weird uh, pinhole uh, cap mm -hmm. lens that I might use for one successful image ever. Uh, yep. Maybe I won't even, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but I've still spent, uh, uh, spent the, what, $79.99 on that to, to have this. Even if it's useful for me once, that is, that, that's worthwhile. Worth so yeah. so yeah. whether that's hardware in this case that I'm talking about or software in your case, then, uh, then yeah, you use the right tool for the right job. Yeah, not only, not only is it, does it do a good job, but it really, from a time point of view, um, I would say that, Taking a single Milky Way image and processing it properly and getting it to be what you want it to look like, um, you've got about you know a 30, 40% reduction in the amount of time that you spend. So that's worth it. Yep. 
Uh, and, and it's not just for astrophotography uh, as well. You know, they state landscapes, night, deep sky, fusion images, of course, where you're combining uh, a, uh, a landscape image that might have been taken earlier in the day with yes. uh, astro imagery, uh, imagery as well. Uh, and so they've got all of this stuff in this astro panel, which is 49.90 euro, uh, down from a $200 euro, euro price. Um, yeah, I, I'll admit that I don't know if, uh, companies like this, when they're doing their marketing schemes, ever actually sell it at, at 200 euro. Uh, it does make it seem like a great deal when it's a quarter of that price, though, and I'm sure that it is. Um, and it looks really, really full featured. It almost looks like you're staring at the cockpit of an aircraft with all of these buttons and knobs and dials and yeah. any self-respective geek would just totally love that level of control, even if you're only going to be using one or two simple things to just enhance your workflow. And there are some auto buttons also, just like you have in Lightroom and Photoshop that, that at least set your image into a clean, editable state. Let's put it that way. Right. Right. Perfect. Well, that's actually a great pick uh, to augment. And it's uh, it, it plugs into to, to Photoshop. So Photoshop right. CC all the way to the latest versions. Um, does not look like it is compatible with other software, at least not right now. But the bulk of my editing is still in Photoshop. So anybody yep. that is a Photoshop user, uh, take a look at this. And they've got, uh, um, they've got a preset pack and they've got other things on their website too, if you wanted to check it out. It seems like it's a pretty well-designed piece of software. Perfect. Well, thank you for that, Shiv. Um, You're I most actually, welcome. I, I might. I, I haven't done a lot of astro work lately, uh, but I've been itching to do it. I've got this one concept that I need to explore that has cost me a significant amount of money. Um, just in gathering the one ingredient, I, I bought a, I believe it's a 16 or 18 inch diameter crystal ball. Mm -hmm. That uh, I want to sit on like a beautiful moss covered stump in uh in a an area that has a beautiful view of the night sky and photograph the milky way through the crystal ball as the concept um and i might do all sorts of creative lighting around it making it some sort of like fairy-like experience photographing the milky way in this concept uh concept um and then to shoot that as stereoscopic 3d which would really be an immersive experience oh, yes. so uh, um so how yeah. big did you say this crystal ball was at uh, 16 to 18 inches in diameter so it must be pretty heavy it's heavy <laughs> mm. Yeah, I just moving it uh, to its storage shelf took a lot of oomph to yeah, get it there. Because, I mean, I have one of the the larger lens ball, as they you know, at least the, the it, one it, nice it's, thing. It's just about, a crystal ball that's marketed towards yeah, photographers. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, yeah. Good luck with that project. Yeah, I, I will have yeah. to do all of the scouting to find the proper location before I ever dream of uh, of moving well, that find crystal the location, ball from the trunk of my car. It might not have the moss, and then you got to grow moss and come back next year. Uh, you know what? It might be that long of a game to play yeah, to, to get yeah, this to work. Yeah. And I'm more than Absolutely. happy to get some moss spores and start that whole process and, yep. and, <laughs> and make that part of the narrative. Um, you know, a lot of times I've gone, uh, gone long on creating images. Sometimes they've taken months to create in different concepts. And, um, and if I were to be able to do that shift, to even just take a photograph of the barren stump, Mm -hmm. and then put the moss on it and then come back a year later. Just the story of building the scene would be, yeah. uh, you know, fun, fun to tell. And time-lapse so. it. 
Yeah, I could. I could do that too. Oh, you're giving yeah. me all sorts of ideas. You're going to cost me too much money. That's uh, okay. Spend it. <laughs> exactly. You only live once. Yes. Um, well, and thank you to everybody for listening to this episode of Photo Geek Weekly, which again, you can find at photogeekweekly.com. Tell your friends, write a review. If you enjoy this, I will continue to do this. This is totally pro bono on my part, a labor of love. Uh, and on a weekly basis, I'm glad that you all enjoy Thank you for listening, and especially for those that have not yet been vaccinated, it's still time to stay in and shoot.